I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And you're listening to Deep Cut. You think that's Deep Cut you're listening to? It's all in your mind, Neo. I don't know. What is the Deep Cut? R R R R R R R. What? Our. <laughs> are our ears real? But our. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> let's. Let's go. <laughs> On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss a director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view dumb movies as they may want us to. Welcome to our last episode of the season. Or last two episodes of the season. I should correct mm. myself. Penultimate. Last two directors, too. <laughs> last two directors. <laughs> because we, we started the season off this year with the Cohen brothers, it is only fitting that we end the season on sisters. Listeners, co-hosts. Yep. Anyone out there in the etherwebs listening, welcome to The Matrix <laughs> and our two-parter on action connoisseurs and the women that will probably save cinemas this year. I am so incredibly excited to talk about the Wachowskis with you two. Okay, quick sidebar. I, I found out that Lily's not involved with Matrix 4. I know. Yeah, she's not. <laughs> she's not. <laughs> unfortunately. Unfortunately. So one of the two will save cinemas later this year. Hopefully. And I just hope Lily's having a, a fun time doing what she wants to do. Yeah. Because they deserve everything. So before we get into The Matrix, I'm going to do a really, really brief overview of Lana and Lily Wachowski and how they ended up being two of the greatest American action directors of our time. Lana was born in Chicago in 1965, and Lily was born two and a half years later in 1967. Their parents didn't really work in the film industry, but they had family members like an uncle who was an Emmy Award-winning producer. They also have two other sisters, Julie and Laura, I know Julie was worked on their film Bound, which we will get into later, and she is also a novelist and a screenwriter. The two, they went to elementary school and high school together and apparently were really big D&D fans ah. and were also big theater kids and AV club kids as well, <laughs> which explains a lot regarding their obsession with sci-fi and the works that they ended up doing in the future. Lana went to Bard in New York, and Lily attended Emerson in Boston. Both did not finish college and instead left and started running a house painting and construction business in Chicago. So by the mid-1990s, they switched paths and started going into film writing. They wrote a script for this movie called Assassins, which they didn't direct in 1994. Assassins was directed by Richard Donner and released in 1995. So Warner Brothers bought the script and the contract that the Wachowskis had with Warner Brothers. It was a deal for the script and two subsequent movies in this contract. So to abide by the contract, they went into their next project, which was a 1996 neo-noir thriller called Bound, um, which <laughs> we will probably be talking about very soon. That was their directorial debut, and they both wrote it as well. Long story short, it was received very well, and they asked if they could make their next project, which was The Matrix. Lana and Lily are also both the first major Hollywood directors to come out as trans. So Lily came out in the early 2010s and then Lana later on around, I think, like 2015 or 2016 and have been very prominent and vocal figures in queer cinema and trans cinema and continue to light the torch and to pave the way for other trans directors in Hollywood. Let's just dive right into The Matrix, which I think is one of the best 
American action movies ever made. Yeah. And (laughs) pretty hard to argue with that. Pretty hard to argue with that. When I was growing up, The Matrix was my favorite movie. Mm -hmm. It was hands down my favorite movie. I would run around. You know how they run and they they keep their their hands like so straight like this. I would I would run around like this, like a fucking madman thinking that I was like Neo and like thinking I could like jump on walls and stuff. I thought this was an anime thing, but okay. (laughs) Well, this does lift a lot from anime, right? Yeah. Yeah, it probably came from anime, but I was obsessed. I was obsessed with the idea that the world that we live in is not a world, but it's rather a simulation. And mm. if you think hard enough out of the box, you you can bend the rules of the world. Mm. And I hadn't seen it for quite a few years Two years ago, they did a 4K restoration and started playing them in theaters. And I caught Mm. that one night, honestly, a little inebriated (laughs) and by myself, but had an absolute blast, thoroughly enjoyed my time and rewatching it this time for the podcast. Not only was it an enjoyable watch, but also I think it is a very impactful action movie and speaks volumes about identity and sexuality and how you see yourself in the world. And I think that is very meaningful to a lot of people. Quick sidebar, we should have a letterbox list going of movies that Wilson <laughs> admits to watching inebriated <laughs> The list will the start whole becoming endless. Yeah, yeah, you're like, oh, oh sorry, I, I've seen that one inebriated as well. <laughs> so, Eli and Ben, I want to hear what you guys think. I don't remember the first time I watched it because I only had memories of watching this sitting in my parents' bed before going to bed (laughs) and watching on like free-to-air channels with ads. So I don't think I've ever actually watched the whole thing straight through until I did watch it yesterday. Oh, Oh, really? It's kind of like my first full watch of it yesterday, I think. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. So I guess I go to my reactions. I mean, it's a damn good action movie. I was thinking about it in terms of like other action movies that we've been talking about as well. And when I say that, I'm talking about Justice League and Dune, which we talked about recently, which is that the reason I liked the most recent Dune is because it was being very serious about its subject matter. Mm -hmm. The Matrix is very serious about its subject matter. Yeah. Yeah. It's never trying to do comedy for the sake of lightening the mood. No. It's very much into its own world building, into its philosophy. It doesn't mock itself first so as to avoid other people mocking the movie later. At Marvel. Yeah. Like, it's just, like, committed to its idea and its philosophy. Yeah. And I admire that, and I think because of Marvel, that action movies have gotten to the point where, like, it's all about quipping and, like, making fun of itself to kind of keep the tone light. Yeah. Not even just Marvel, though. Like, I would say that Fast and Furious, Mm. like, there's a lot of franchises that are, I guess, try to get that four-quadrant appeal and by doing that, take away from seriousness in in the movie. This supports my point when we talk about Zack Snyder's Justice League that that should have been extremely serious. (laughs) Instead of whoever did the comedic pass on that script, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it should have just been extremely serious. And I think I would be more for that. That technique is called bathos with comedy that undercuts the dramatic seriousness of a situation in the narrative. And you're right, Ben. It's a way of saying, I'm going to beat you to the punch. You can't make fun of me for being sincere. I don't actually care. Mm. But the Wachowskis, it seems to me, are very sincere. They care. I also really like that about The Matrix. Is it Bathos spelled B-A-E-T-H-O-S? Bathos. (laughs) (laughs) I first encountered The Matrix as a kid because my parents wouldn't let me see it. (laughs) (laughs) I think they were scared that the torture scene would have been too intense for me. Mm. And they were probably right, (laughs) though looking at it now, there isn't really much that's actually shown. Yeah. The mouth thing is pretty... Freaky. It's freaky. It's okay. Young me got really freaked out with the mouth thing. I was like, how how, how does that happen? I guess the scariest thing about it is Elrond (laughs) squeezing on Lawrence Fishburne's head. (laughs) (laughs) But what I did then was I would watch clips on YouTube. And those action sequences have a real infectious quality and you know there was like a video that someone made that was lego characters Mm. doing the security checkpoint action scene Mm. and there's something that feels like a springboard about the matrix where it's elemental 
and it's a paragon of action. And, you know, of course it is pulling from things like the Bible in its script, and it's a very Jesus-y narrative. Mm -hmm. But there's something about the broadness of it that feels very specific, because there are these things that you can pull out of it, talking about what Wilson said with identity, or self-confidence and belief. Mm -hmm. And also, and I'm thinking about this knowing that the Wachowskis were into D&D as kids, the world is super lived in. Mm, yeah. There's a whole scene where they pause at the dinner table on Morpheus's ship and talk through like what the food is like on the ship. Mm-hmm. What do they do for fun? How do they use the simulation in their downtime? Mm-hmm. There are things that feel very believable and it has this big or text quality to it mm-hmm. that makes it really easy to engage with. And of course, the action is just impeccably staged. So, yeah, I mean, it's just one of the best American action movies, and it's kind of great. I'm glad you talked about YouTube and stuff, because I was thinking about, like, like why I know so many lines from The Matrix, and it's because they have been used in, like, when I was younger, watching, like, all these, like, weird Flash animations. <laughs> mm-hmm. And people would just quote, like, for example, There Is No Spoon was a thing everywhere. You know what I mean? People yeah. put that into everything. I remember. As, like, a contextless kind of line. The cake is a lie. And, yeah, it's sort of mocking the line itself, but it's also because it's such an iconic line. It's a little off-kilter, like, it's such a strange phrase but it's in the film because it is a strange sentence that doesn't really make sense without context mm-hmm. yeah that kind of speaks to the cultural power that it has that it has spread to everything and people wanted to put it into their own creative work and the fact that it was coming out in 1999 which is like quite early internet yeah and i miss early internet <laughs> yeah it's a fully about movie about the digital age and how the digital world can consume us in 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 a lot of different ways yeah and is alienating yes and is alienating before we get into our deeper conversation on the movie uh let's do a quick plot summary and then also a little bit of context for the movie the matrix is about this computer programmer named thomas anderson who in his free time also deals in the dark web and (laughs) works for some shady individuals to probably like buy goods and stuff and he dives a little too deep in the dark web and finds this thing that he doesn't know called the matrix there's a crew of people led by this man named Morpheus that that find him who pull the hood from over his eyes that the world is actually in 2099 and these sentinels which are robot beings are harvesting human bodies to give them energy and they do that through putting human brains through this simulation called the matrix which make people think that it's the 90s to be free from it is to be released from this body prison and when they come to they realize that their world and the the human race as a species is at the brink of extinction and morpheus believes that thomas anderson now known as neo in prophesized to be the one to save the human race. (laughs) Jesus. Sorry. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) That is a very brief overview, but I think that covers most of the plot. A few things to note about The Matrix. Our dear friend of the pod, if if friendship was a one-sided street, Yun Wo Ping. (laughs) I just wish Yun Wo Ping was a friend of the pod, but he is not. Um, (laughs) Yun Wo Ping was hired as the action choreographer for the movie because Lana and Lily were big admirers of Hong Kong action cinema. So they just decided to go to the source and ask the guy who does it best, Yun Mo Ping, to work on the fight scenes. So they were training for four months prior to shooting, which is quite a lot lot of time for an American action flick. And Yoon was a little worried about (laughs) the physical state of the actors and whether they could take the action sequences, (laughs) but decided to develop the action sequences to pander to each of their specific fighting styles that they started developing when they were training. So he built on Keanu Reeves's diligence, Lawrence Fishburne's resilience, Hugo Weaving's precision, and Carrie Ann Moss's feminine grace. (laughs) And the Wachowskis looked towards a lot of Hong Kong action flicks, so a lot of John Woo, 
and also cites Homer's Odyssey and the works of John Huston, Stanley Kubrick, Fritz Lang, George Lucas, Ridley Scott, and Billy Wilder <laughs> as influences. And also, I guess, God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's the Western, like, religious stuff. There's a lot of the Eastern Buddhist kind of philosophies that are also seeping into this. That's true. Yes. Especially when you talk about freeing the mind. Yeah, a lot of that is coming from Buddhist kind of concepts of the self. Yes. Even though The Matrix was made before the Wachowskis had transitioned, Lily has said in a recent interview, I guess she basically confirmed a lot of what fans were thinking that The Matrix is a trans allegory. She basically outright stated that it was their original intention to have The Matrix be a trans allegory. But, quote her, the corporate world wasn't ready for it yet. And I'm sure they weren't. Mm. So I think it was a very smart way of packaging this story that, that that could be about like realizing a new identity and and believing in yourself in that way to the mainstream audience but also to trans people out there to to like see their stories being told in in, a, in one of the biggest blockbusters ever i think that the concept or the idea of the matrix is a, is a, just a really great framing device for an action film because you have these two separate worlds where you have stuff that happens in the matrix and stuff that happens outside of the matrix and at least in the first film most of the action sequences occur within the matrix and it's sort of like the um, the idea of video games and movies where mm. once you're in the video game your abilities as a as a character are enhanced and you become like sort of like superhuman mm. but the matrix sort of takes it a bit further because it's like sort of an extension of the self but in order to achieve superhuman greatness Outside of it, you have to realize that it is just an extension of the self and not the self. Mm. It was just such a fascinating and complicated concept that is explained. I guess it's repeated quite a lot in the movie, but I think it is explained very well to even to like kids like that were my age watching the movie, which was around like five or six. Like I, I got the concept that like the world is not the world. And that's why you can do superhuman things, because when you believe it's all just ones and zeros, you can manipulate it. This movie is incredibly effective at conveying exposition in a way that is clear and visually engaging. Mm -hmm. It is hiding information in these sequences with incredible transitions or in action sequences like the dojo simulation fight. Mm -hmm. It's full of scenes that do multiple things at once. Yeah. That convey information, that entertain you, that give you character emotion. Yeah, it's so sharply written. Lessons from the Screenplay is a really great video essay about exposition and the Matrix. And I think the thing that it does well is that it doesn't spoon-feed you information from the beginning of the film. Hmm. Like, the first act is very confusing. Mm -hmm. So when I was watching it, I had already pretty much forgotten how the Matrix worked and, like, how the world worked. So actually, for me, it was like watching it for the first time. So when we first see Neo as Thomas Anderson, I was a bit confused. I was like, is this part of the Matrix or does he jack into the Matrix later? I was like, a bit, <laughs> I kind of forgotten how the world was built. <laughs> and so... see jack off in the Matrix. <laughs> jacking in is like this whole cyberpunk term anyway. Yeah. So... Wilson, I thought the same thing. It's a thing. <laughs> Sorry. Sigh. <laughs> <laughs> You're running a podcast with a couple of kids, Ben. <laughs> no, I'm just a nerd because I like all the cyberpunk stuff. I used to play like a game that was about like jacking in and all that kind of stuff. And like doing hacking stuff. Anyway, like I wasn't sure like what I was looking at, whether it was like part of the real world or like part of the matrix. So that was a very interesting viewing experience because then it was hard to remember which parts of Neo's experience was in the real world or not in the real world. And of course, at the mm -hmm. end, you realize that it's not at all in the real world. Everything is the Matrix. Everything. They play a lot with, like, for example, when he wakes up, it's a dream, but it's not a dream. It's just that he has forgotten the things that has happened or like yeah. he has been made to think that what has happened is a dream. That's all very well constructed and it's not explained until after he gets out of the Matrix. Then you finally put those pieces together. I always put it in comparison with like modern action movies where they like want to have audience clarity almost all the time. Like they, they are mm. so scared to leave the audiences in the dark, I guess out of fear that because you don't understand something, you won't like it. 
But if you don't understand something and it's engaging enough, isn't your interest to learn more the driving force to to get you to the next act or mm. to the yeah? Uh, I don't uh, yeah. Put a different way, there's a difference between confusion and intrigue. Mm. Mm-hmm. It can be hard to create intrigue without creating confusion, but when it's done well, you want to lean in and you want to put two and two together as an audience member. Yeah. It's quite a fine balance you have to do because sometimes you can make things confusing if you choose not to explain certain things. But here I think the parts which are like hard to understand are part of the action sequences. So they have the kind of pleasure of watching action. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to watch, but then you're also questioning the the physics of it. Like, like why is this happening? Why is he able to jump across buildings? Why is she able to like basically defy gravity as she kicks all these people? Yeah. It looks cool, but then you're questioning you're like wondering hmm, why is this happening and so it's really difficult to go back into the matrix to understand it without the context of already knowing what the matrix is and the kind of effect that it has had on all the films that come after it yeah mm-hmm. so like if you really try to forget the 20 years after the matrix <laughs> like i know that if i was a teenager which i wasn't at the time that the matrix came out mm-hmm. i would have been gaga for this movie for sure oh yeah <laughs> you know what i mean because like this is probably like the inception of its time right yeah i was a about to say that, Ben. <laughs> yeah. They do similar things where the first two thirds are a ton of exposition and the final act is all payoff. Mm-hmm. They both do an incredible job of leaving the breadcrumbs for you to figure things out. And then once you get it, it can just go boom, boom, boom and hit the nails on the head. And it's immensely satisfying for the viewer. Yeah. Talking about like confusion, I realized that actually a lot of Nolan's films the more action-oriented ones like Inception and Tenet actually, I think, kind of subscribe to the idea that the audience doesn't have to understand everything Mm -hmm. and that the visual pleasure of action can carry a movie. And I think Tenet's extremely confusing. He might understand his own internal logic, but he doesn't really expect you to understand it. Matrix, somewhat similar, but Matrix, I think, comes to a point of clarity once you figure out all the pieces. Yeah. Talking about Tenet is like sending up the Thanmai signal. (laughs) (laughs) When he appears on the chat just now, yeah. (laughs) I would say the big difference for me between, like, the Nolan works and the Wachowski's Matrix stuff, or even, like, the Wachowski's, like, Speed Racer Mm. or Bound, is that I think that character work in it is very crucial Mm. into explaining the ethos of the movie like they're always intrinsically tied to what the the subject matter of the movie is whereas with like Tenet it's like they're always like caught up in the whole like plot or time device Mm. that Nolan wants to play around with but with the Matrix like it's important that it is Neo yes it is important that it's Orpheus and Trinity these characters mean something grander past them as beings on the screen they sort of like represent greater things y'all were talking about the kind of thematic stuff here like before and i think part of it is like the film has such a universal appeal yes there's a trans allegory there but that allegory can actually be applied to pretty much anything right because this is such a lightning in a bottle kind of premise where it's about working your boring dumb job and actually you can transcend it (laughs) right Mm -hmm. everyone literally the whole universe can find their place in this film. You don't have to live in the 90s. (laughs) Yeah, and the only people this film doesn't cater to are people with immense political or economic power Mm -hmm. who are able to use that power to already transcend it. So as long as you're anywhere below that, you can identify with the Matrix. You can identify with Neo feeling like the world is a system that's oppressing you, like you're the main character and you can get out of it. And I think that power fantasy of The Matrix, kind of like a video game, like that power fantasy Mm -hmm. is what makes it such a universal appeal to different cultures and to anyone, like this, regardless of identity or or place in the universe, really. In my opinion, The Matrix sort of marks the, like a sort of a turning point in American cinema or action cinema. Mm. I would say that it marks the end of the golden age of American action cinema between the 80s and the 90s where you have stuff like Speed, like John DeBont's Speed or Die Hard that are really, really appealing and engaging action flicks that have really great action set pieces and also sort of the matrix marking the start of a new era of movies that combine practical special effects as well as 
computer-generated imaging and real action fight choreography and putting them all together in a relatively seamless way. What I was very surprised about watching it this time around is how much the CGI holds up 20 years down the line. I was too. I think it is because it is very stylized. All like the bullet time stuff when the things go in slow-mo and the camera like swoops around, that is very like video gamey in a sense but Mm. also because i think the whole idea of the matrix is like it's a it's just a computer generated program yeah like when things look glitchy i'm like it's just the matrix it works because a lot of the effects are still quite practical the parts which are mostly cg are the sentinels the robots and i think the smart thing that they do is they they rarely show you the sentinels in the same shot as the humans Mm. Mm -hmm. and so by virtue of doing that then at least you have some separation between the CG and the reality. Wow. So you never have to like match them in the same shot, mm-hmm. right? Because once you put them in the same shot and they do it a few times, that's when the illusion breaks, right? But then when you're just looking at robots going through the tunnels, it works because there's nothing to distract you from the fact that it's not quite as detailed as they could have been in that time. Like a few of the stuff in the action sequences that the Wachowskis and co and the people that they worked with sort of pioneered. And that includes the time ramping during the bullet time action sequences, like on the top of the roof when Neo dodges the bullets. Mm. It's a really iconic moment that has been copied by a lot of other directors in their action sequences. And I think that the wire work, which was brought from Hong Kong action cinema, has also very rarely been used in American movies prior to this and was sort of a fresh thing. And I think what also appeals to so many audiences, it sort of like blends the best bits from from all these longtime action genres, like the Hong Kong flick, like the Western, like they're taking the best ways to like build suspense or the, the best ways to show pause, action, pause Mm -hmm. in the action sequences. It is just like sort of breaking down like what you want your characters to achieve within each action beat and trying to figure out what's the best way to show that, like using all the influences from all the other movies that they've been watching. I think when we talk about the action, like the parts that really work for me are a lot of the more hand-to-hand combat stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The dojo sequence especially works really well because of the work of Yuan Wu-Ping, who is one of the key people in terms of doing that kind of action pause fight choreography, which really gives those sequences a lot of rhythm and pace. I think for me, the large gunfights are the places which I'm like less interested or I start to check out a little bit because like that kind of operatic massive gun violence is somewhat cool to look at, but it for me lacks that rhythm that the hand-to-hand sequences have, Mm. right? When I think about the lobby sequence where they go to save Morpheus, like a lot of those shots of tons of gunfire and then you see Neo and Trinity running across. It's interesting, it's epic, but it doesn't really give you that sense of pace because yeah. it's just a lot of fire and smoke and it's not really doing too much for me on a on the visceral level even though it's trying so hard yeah to give me a reaction it's very like wooian <laughs> like yeah, i'm not really a fan of that kind of woo stuff bullet like, ballet stuff yeah, yeah not super interesting and i don't think they do it especially well in the matrix although there are moments in that lobby sequence like when she disarms this guy with a shotgun which picks up that rhythm, right? Yes. Where you have that kind of yes. the staccato edit of shots where she disarms this guy and then gets the shotgun and then shoots people. Those are the points where that lobby sequence kind of lights up for me. That one shot where they're running across the pillars being shot at, it's like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> ben, I entirely agree. The hand-to-hand stuff is where you really get to see Yuan Wu-Ping's work with what Wilson was saying about developing a hand-to-hand style that is specific to each character. I'm thinking about the different combinations of Neo and Morpheus fighting, Neo and Agent Smith, Morpheus and Agent Smith fighting, Mm -hmm. and you really get to see the different character balances in those pair-ups. And I find that a lot more engaging as well. I also find myself feeling uncomfortable, particularly in the lobby shootout with maybe a near kind of like fetishistic look at guns and yeah yeah uh, and also shooting of ostensibly innocent people like i don't know i i don't i don't love that part of it and 
I think also what with what Ben's saying about the kind of aim to awe you with the bullet ballet stuff, I find that encapsulated in the only really CG shot that doesn't work at all for me is the elevator door exploding across <laughs> the lobby. It's like, mm-hmm. okay. That's a lot. It is a, a lot. lot. Yeah. Because that's one where they're doing CG fire, CG door, but then the lobby is not CG and it doesn't really match. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially in watching it today. But I will say though, there's a great payoff when they cut to the lobby and then like a piece of while the pillars falls off. Yeah, yeah, that's a great ending to the scene. It's a great ending. And I was thinking about like the action sequences here pay a lot of attention to the aftermath, which I think gives it some time to breathe of like, what is the end of this sequence? It's not just, okay, it's action and then we leave. Like, yeah. this feeling of, like, the dust settling. Right. And I think they do this quite often. Yeah. they're And they're also really fully, like, stylistically designated as different scenes. Like, I wrote in my letterbox review that towards the end, the sequencing of action sequences are sort of, like, back to back to back. Mm-hmm. And that is, like, a really good thing that... I think you go from the lobby up onto the rooftop to the bullet time Neo dodges the bullet and then they save Morpheus from the building. They're hanging onto the helicopter and then he he goes into the subway sequence, basically. I think the really smart differentiation of space and the way that space is filmed makes each of these sequences very memorable and iconic in their own right and then when placed sort of like one after the other you sort of have like a row of all timers next to each other which I think is really incredible because I think when you think about I guess modern day action movies and action set pieces they're usually spaced out really well or it is one really long action set piece where you can't really tell like it doesn't really take place in one location they're always like moving and fighting and the destruction is always so big and you can't really like there's nothing really like super tangible about the sequence that makes it memorable to you like the subway sequence is memorable because it takes place on the subway and they use the architecture of that space Mm. and the train itself as part of the action and not just part of the destruction that happens in action sequences you're exactly right wilson it prevents fatigue because it is dividing up space and it's more engaging because of that it also has to do with stakes and thematic resonance of those stakes. So what personally do the Avengers have to lose or gain in saving Sokovia? (laughs) That's really not fair to lob. But I use that as a counterpoint because in each scene of the long climactic back-to-back action sequences in The Matrix, which doesn't feel tedious because it is broken up, first, they're going in to save Morpheus. Then... Neo has to fight to survive, and in the process, he has to believe in himself and become the one. There are very clear stakes for the characters and what they care about, and also the theme. We want to see Neo succeed because we want him to survive, we want him to save Morpheus, and we want him to believe in himself and become the one and transcend his life in the Matrix. Yes, they're trying to save the world, but then the stakes are localized within the cast of characters, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you have somebody in jeopardy. It's not... The world is in jeopardy, we gotta save it, which is very vague. Like, the world is... Exactly. It's not enough to make sense of it, but then here you have a character that makes it make sense. And I think that's the icky territory that the sequels sort of try to wade into, and that's why... I guess because the first Matrix is so simple in the goal of Neo and Trinity, like just for that final action beat, that it really works within a self-contained movie. Not to say that I think there's very cool things about Reloaded and Revolutions, and I think Reloaded has the best action sequences in the whole franchise so far. Mm. Shout out, because we're not going to talk about it, but shout out to that highway sequence. It's really, it's really iconic and like must watch. You can just watch that on YouTube. Um, (laughs) Does that also have the vampire chateau, that one? Yeah, that does have the vampire chateau. And then they keep on going through the doors. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's great. I just think the the Wachowskis are so good at setting up action sequences where they there's multiple characters have different wants and needs in this action sequences. And the Mm. way that they act represents what they themselves 
feel in that moment. And I think so many things need to come into play to make that sing and make that work. Like, first of all, you have to have like a good action choreographer, which they do. But I do think that the casting is also very important because you need to have these characters that really like fully within themselves, not even just acting wise, their core needs to be very similar or the way they move has to be similar to the character that they're playing. I think Keanu, I don't think anyone else really could have been Neo. Like, they were considering, like, Will Smith, but I don't think... Will Smith has incredible charm and charisma. Yes. Keanu has a sincerity to match the worldview sincerity of the Wachowskis. 100%. I think Keanu in this one doesn't feel like what you would think a hero will look and move like. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's something about him that feels quite, not just sincere, but... It's a little lanky, right? Like a yeah, little... a little lanky. <laughs> I feel seen. He's not fully in control of his body, like, in the first act, especially. Again, I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, then you see him get kind of in control of his movement and then, obviously, learns Kung Fu, all that crap. Like, he comes to his own. And I think you needed somebody like Keanu who, like, is young and getting there as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like a little naive. Yeah, he's very naive looking, yes. Like, because before this, the only other big action movie that Keanu was in <laughs> was shot at second time on the pod <laughs> on this episode, <laughs> John DeBont's Speed. Point Break? Oh, shit, never mind. It was Point Break oh, as well. <laughs> sorry, I ruined your point. <laughs> <laughs> Two movies, <laughs> Catherine Bigelow's Point Break and John DeBont's Speed. <laughs> I love John <laughs> and Gus Van Sant's my own private Idaho. <laughs> but yes, he's he was a really fresh fresh actor. But I, the, the Matrix is the reason that Keanu is the big action star that he is today. And that's why I also find it exciting that the Matrix Resurrections, going by the trailers and the information that they give us, is running with a similar awareness of where Keanu is culturally and in the public and framing a narrative around that. It's always such a thrill when a director knows what their star's persona is and uses it in the narrative. I will say I'm concerned about Matrix 4 looking at the trailer. (laughs) It has a Force Awakens energy to it. (laughs) Who knows, right? Who knows, Like I hope it's good, but it has a bit of the Force Awakens, like because it seems to be retreading a lot of what worked in the Matrix. Yeah, Lana gave an interview about why she wanted to, like, make the the fourth movie. And I think it has been on the table for a long, long time. And they just didn't want to do it. But then I think a few years ago, their parents both passed away, like, really close to each other, in date to each other. And Lana sort of said something to the effect of she herself was, like, searching for something. And what she realized what she needed was Neo and Trinity and... Morpheus again and that's Mm. why she decided to go back into the world again but that's nothing to say about the plot of the movie and yeah who knows we'll we'll see when it comes out but I've I've very (laughs) I have very high hopes just because I think everything that Lana and Lily have done post the Matrix including Cloud Atlas which is wild and I have to shout out Sense8 which is one of the best Netflix originals that they've ever made widely underseen is that saying much one of the best Netflix originals (laughs) (laughs) so I think what rings through throughout their filmography is that no matter how wild the premise gets there's always a seriousness that comes to when approaching the subject matter and to the characters. There's never a, like, we are doubting ourselves about this. And they always commit to the bit. And I think, as a director, if you believe in your story that much, and you use that earnestness to tell the story, it will reflect in the viewers. Like, Speed Racer is a pretty stupid concept like i guess objectively but it is still a really engaging action movie with really fantastic action sequences that are like nail biting because they commit to the bit i would describe it as a kind of fearlessness by which i mean they're not afraid that the audience isn't going to get it they like neo just have a confidence in themselves that it's going to work Yeah, because they're leading with this thing that they want to say that they care about. Yeah. 
I think when I try and draw the line of like the action movie kind of history, like because the Matrix comes after stuff like Speed and like Die Hard. Like, I don't know, Die Hard is that nineties? Yeah, like yeah. Those are all very earnest action movies. It's just that they weren't created with a world building perspective. And so the Matrix is using those action movie kind of tenets from those earlier 90s, 80s stuff, which are very earnest, and then builds a world that the action is happening in. And I think what kind of goes wrong after the Matrix is that people think that the world is all people care about, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, if you think about the Matrix, like, all those other movies I mentioned, no one's cosplaying them. No. <laughs> okay? The Matrix can cosplay any of them. <laughs> right? And so that's kind of like why, why do you think the world building creates fandoms, right? Matrix has a fandom. <laughs> so the Matrix has like a fandom, but then it is still kind of operating with those core action movie principles. I want to talk about latex and how <laughs> this movie <laughs> looks. But the latex, I think, is... I keep on saying that this movie is sexy, but I think the latex is sort of 70% of why the movie is sexy to me. I think the, 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 okay, Eli, don't look at me like that. It's not, it's not that weird, right? The character should be squeaking with every step. (laughs) No, wait, wait, I agree, Wilson. I was going to write a letterbox review, which was going to be about leather. (laughs) Leather and latex. And boots. Yeah, because I was like, I don't know how to phrase this joke. (laughs) There's going to be something like, if if not for the weather, maybe it's time to bring leather in. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> but I think, like, yes, there is not a lot of, like, weight placed into the, like, the world I- itself in the movie. But I think the, the, the creation of how the world looks and how the world feels, like, drawing from a lot of, I guess, what you would call cyberpunk aesthetics mm-hmm. and sort of, like, a modern take on that really makes everyone seem so much cooler and the like the the, the the really easy differentiation of who knows about the matrix and who is reborn and versus like all the other like sheep you can okay. very clearly see it in the way that they're dressed I will say that um, talking about how sexy this movie is, despite my reservations about the central romance between Trinity and Neo. What are your reservations? I have some reservations. They love each other. It's meant to be. I know, but like, why? (laughs) Like, I don't think they set it up that well, but... Because they look like the same person. (laughs) But that first, or like one of the early interactions in that bar where everyone's wearing leather gear. Ugh. Yeah, that's that's hot because yeah, something about how close they are and the way that she talks to him. There's like a real sizzle there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't think there's a lot to I think the chemistry sells it enough for me that I'm just like, yeah, yes, you are in love. That's, <laughs> it makes sense. I will say there are some line reads that Carrie Ann Moss does that I don't fully buy into. But anytime she's talking about or looking at Keanu Reeves, I do buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, what yeah. line reads? I thought Karen Moss was, like, amazing in this. She's really good. God damn you, Cypher. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's really good. Like, she really carries herself really well. <laughs> carries herself. <laughs> There's something very... Like, something rock solid about her performance. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, in, like, her physicality. Like, she's, yeah. like, still and, like, commands the screen. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be said about basically all the main characters. Like, Morpheus, cool as fuck fuck yeah like, he's so cool in the dojo sequence like he's just like it's not like a charm but it's just like an extreme level hiddenness that Lawrence Fishman pulls off really well and shout out we gotta talk about Hugo Weaving oh yeah yeah who is a very memorable action movie villain from this era I think the plan was to have multiple like agents, right? But then you know how in the sequels it all just becomes Agent Smith. Mm-hmm. Oh, spoiler, spoiler! But yes, that's what happened. <laughs> but I think it's because Hugo Weaving just kills it. <laughs> I mean, they're kind of meant to all look the same. <laughs> but the way he says, "Mr. Anderson," you really believe the disdain that he has for humanity when he has those monologues to Morpheus, right? He's also just, like, his line reading is, like, just a little bit off-kilter enough that, like, he doesn't seem quite right. Like, if, if this dude started talking to me, and like, <laughs> like, I'll be like, what is up with this dude? <laughs> He's not a real man. He's a robot yeah. man. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a glitch in the Matrix. <laughs> this guy started talking to me. <laughs> There's a fine line that the Wachowskis are walking here as well in their depiction of Agent Smith, where it would be 
easy to make him completely computerized, distant, single-willed, but he does have ulterior motive. He has personality and he wants to get out. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what they do with the camera in those cases is that they put it really close to Hugo Weaving's face. Yeah. And they let him chew up the scenery. Yeah. And be super expressive and not exactly computerish. Mm-hmm. He really has a personality, and the Wachowskis are great at supporting performance in general. But what they do with Agent Smith is pretty interesting, and yeah. how close they put him to you. Yeah. Feels like he's invading your personal space. The more that I think about it, the more that I uh, I realize that it's a harder feat to pull to have everyone really committed to the same exact vision, right? Mm. Because whenever you have your actors go like 100%, commit to the bit, commit to the character and to the tone... All of them have different takes on what the movie is. Yeah. And that ends up, their performances start straying into different directions and feel like different movies. Like, I could even say that a little bit about Denise Dune this year. I was about to say this. <laughs> like, it just didn't really feel coherent across the board. But you compare that to The Matrix, where I would say that the world is wilder and, and there are even further directions that actors could go with how they take the world and how they take their character, but everything still feels very honed in in the same direction with all of them. And the thinking about the Dune and, and this, I am realizing that it must have been a lot more harder for Lana and Lily, but it feels so effortless in the end product. I was reading that they made all the actors read certain books. So there's the book that Neil opens where like he has these like illegal floppy disks early on. Mm-hmm. That book, Simulation Smoker, is the book that the Wachowskis got all the actors and cast to read before they, I think, even read the script. So I think the point was that they had to understand the philosophy behind the Matrix before they even entered the Matrix. Oh, sick. <laughs> so that they didn't have to ask questions about like, what is this character talking about? What is, what's the point? Right. Like they already they understood it. Understood the philosophy regardless of the world so that they could understand where the movie was coming from maybe that I don't know what other required reading they might have had Mm -hmm. but maybe that's the kind of thing that helped to center the performances towards a certain kind of mode where like everyone becomes part of the same movie unsung keystone player of the cast might be Joe Pantoliano as Cypher Mm. who ultimately betrays the crew Mm. winds up killing some of them Judas whereas everyone else on the team is imbued with this grace and sense of purpose about their mission. Cypher speaks in a different way and has ulterior motives and is rude to everyone else. And that feels like something that could easily feel like it's out of a separate movie, right? But he just serves as a counterpoint and shows the human failing that Morpheus and Trinity and Neo surmount and surpass in themselves. He's something that, like those scenes that show us What do they eat on the ship? What's day-to-day life like? He makes me believe in the humanity of this story and the world because he's selfish and he's believable. I think as a character, he helps to also further the philosophy of this because his character's arc is that he wishes he didn't learn the truth of the Matrix, right? Mm Mm-hmm. He wants to take the blue pill. Like That's a good character to have because then you're able to sell that the Matrix isn't necessarily a bad thing a little bit you know what i mean because if you're ignorant about the matrix then you just live your life like we are living our lives right now right yeah mm-hmm. right so <laughs> do they have podcasts in the matrix <laughs> <laughs> like having that perspective and that betrayal helps to also give you some other perspectives and ways of thinking about the philosophy and world of the matrix yeah it shades in more detail about like yeah how to think about the matrix it's not just oh yeah it's bad to be subjugated by robots. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that's a little bit binary. And I like how he's not really sort of a big bad, but rather just a player in the game. Mm. Because I think there's an easy way that he could have been the one to take the ship down just himself and to like sort of put a face to the force against the people on the ship. But I'm glad it was just part of a, of a larger... Um, narrative there something else that is important about him as a character is his casting in that he is a white guy on the ship where Lawrence Fishburne who's black is in command Trinity is a ranking officer above him and he's sexually frustrated that he can't Mm -hmm. have a connection or love affair with her and part of his motivation is this pettiness 
that he doesn't have power in having woken up from the Matrix mm. because he doesn't believe in this higher purpose of freeing humanity that the others do. And he doesn't have this goodness or virtuous intent in himself. And that's what makes him so easy to become the traitor. And also I think about when we're talking about the cultural legacy of the Matrix, like the term red pilled oh, yeah. is used by like the alt-right. It's a warning embedded in the text of the Matrix against this kind of misuse of the idea of waking up and fighting against the man, right? Mm -hmm. Right. It's not about serving your own needs. It's about doing what's right for everyone and liberating humanity overall. Yeah. Gladly, I am not well versed in the, the, the alt-right the alt movement. It makes it sound like I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know the rip pill stuff like from like like Reddit. Like it's it's not Yeah, but they're all just like misogynists and, and like incels. The rip killing yeah. that I know is from the incels kind of thing where not necessarily alt-right, but, but like basically like it's probably part of like some weird yeah. like pickup artist thing as well is something misogynistic but it did originate from the matrix like the name yeah. did originate from this movie which yeah we do have to acknowledge right because it has become such a big like cultural thing to red pill yeah but it's ironic that that's like it is what they are referencing right yeah yeah that it's become a term that is used as a tool for hate yeah and justifying one's own motives yeah also worth mentioning that one of my favorite comedians, Demi Adijuibe, has an incredible line from back in the day where he cuts from Morpheus offering the red pool and the blue pill to himself and saying, I'll take the red pill. Actually, I'll take both. I'm, I'm just really hungry. And he eats them both. <laughs> Are you really hungry if you're in the Matrix? Hmm, who knows? You're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> you're not you when you're You're a simulation of yourself. <laughs> I have a question for you two. What? Yeah. Because I know next week we are not going to be talking about the, the sequels. Will you two watch the sequels before Matrix 4 comes out this Christmas? Uh, I will definitely watch them before the, I watch Matrix 4. Okay. Yeah. Eli. Yeah, I will, I will as well. I would like to see Matrix Resurrections in theaters. So I will probably watch those, but I'm not signing a blood contract or anything. You're not signing a blood contract that you're going to watch Reloaded in Revolutions. Well, when you put it like that, fine, I'll sign. <laughs> <laughs> On the future of humanity. Okay, so when we do eventually come back and talk about Lana's next directorial foray back into the Matrix world, I'm excited to hear what you guys think. I am really, 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 really hoping that it is a good movie. <laughs> I really, I just like really hope to God that it's a good movie. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's the one movie this year that I'm really like placing my best on because not, nothing else matters. Like fuck Dune, that's stupid. <laughs> like <laughs> it's just really sentimental for me because I love Neo and Trinity and Morpheus and can't wait to see them back on the big screen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you know when our next episode drops. You can keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server to which you'll find a link in the description below. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. My name is Neo. <laughs> I'm Eli. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. <laughs> <laughs>